Thank you, choir. What a privilege it is to enter into the Lord's sanctuary, to be in the beauty of his holiness under in the, the covering of Christ for us as humans to enter here today and to worship him. Thank you, Aaron and Lauren and Nate, for your leadership and helping us to worship the Lord. If we get that right, everything else will fall into place. We have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and that's what we're going to talk about today, getting that part right. We're going to continue our series on family values, not necessarily your family's values, but our family values here at Woodmont Baptist Church, the things that our particular family of faith values most and cherishes above all else. This is all part of our Vision 2020 rollout that we've been working on, our staff has been talking about for over a year now, and we've kind of been rolling it out in phases and kind of letting you guys back into what we believe the Lord is calling us uh, to do and to be as a church. We spent all of January talking about our mission and vision. Our mission is the same mission that every Christian church has. Our mission, we don't get to, to pick one for Woodmont because Jesus already gave us one in Scripture. I think Trey told me that the, the students are memorizing the Great Commandments and the Great Commission, which summarize our mission to love the Lord with all that we are, our, our minds, our strength, every part of our soul, and then to love our neighbors as ourselves, and then also to make disciples. This is clear in the Great Commandments and the Great Commission. And I agree with Rick, Rick Warren that a church that takes seriously the Great Commandments to love God and to love our neighbor, and the Great Commission to go and make disciples of all nations will be a great church if we will focus on those things as our purpose, the reason why we exist here on this corner. But we have a unique vision just for Woodmont, and not even just for Woodmont here forever, but for this season. I don't know, it may be a two-year, maybe a three-year vision, but we really believe that the Lord has called us to focus on this vision to bring hope and healing to our neighbors and to the world. We know that even in the midst of affluent green hills, addiction, divorce, grief, even poverty, across the street the high school has a $10,000 debt right now for student lunches. We have all kinds of needs around us. We have people who are sick mentally, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And we have the unique gospel of Jesus Christ. We have an opportunity to speak hope and healing into a community and into a world that is desperate for both of those things. We really believe that we're to focus outside these walls that God has built this church, in, not for people who are in it, but people for, for people who are outside of it. We exist for those who are not yet within these four walls. If we're going to be effective in following our mission and vision, we must focus outside the walls of this church. I'm excited about focusing on that this year. I've been talking with Steve and some others about how we can reach out into our community and be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. So if we can be a church that is known 
for its love of God, which we call worship, the first commandment. We, we, we talked about this last week, our core values. We talked about worship and prayer last week. If we can be a church that is famous for loving God and, and loving being in God's presence in worship and in prayer, to be close to the heart of the Lord, then we will see a mighty movement of the Spirit like nothing we could ever ask for or even think of. So those, we just skimmed the surface of worship and prayer last week. We didn't really do it justice, but we gotta keep going here. Today we're gonna talk about our third core value, truth. And then next week we'll talk about family, and then we're gonna talk about mission on the last, we get five Sundays in a short month of February, which is great. No, we only get four, I'm sorry. We get an extra day, because of leap day. <laughs> Anybody born on leap day? Anybody like five or six here? No? No, I know someone who was, it's fascinating. Truth today. Our text comes from a book of the Bible that you may have heard of before, it's from the Gospel of John. Uh, we're gonna read from the Gospel of John in chapter 14, verse six. It may be a verse that you're familiar with, but I want you to hear it with fresh ears and fresh eyes today. So may we stand, if you're able to, in honor of God's word, as I read John chapter 14, verse six. Hear now the word of the Lord. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. You know, truth is one of those words that we use so often that maybe it's lost its significance in our culture. Kind of like love, you hear the word love used all the time. This is February, Valentine's Day is right around the corner. Guys, that's a heads up for you. Awesome, people use the word awesome all the time. They don't really mean like they're in awe, right? These kind of words like truth sometimes have lost their significance. Today may be a little philosophical for some of you, maybe you're a little tired, uh, but I want you to put on your thinking caps today. We're gonna really ask the question, what is truth? What do we mean when we say truth? You may recall from John chapter 18, we. For those of you that weren't here, we spent a year in the Gospel of John going verse by verse through that marvelous, fantastic Gospel uh, book. When Pilate was asking Jesus these questions, he asked this very question to Jesus, what is truth? Remember that Jesus appeared there in the, in the palace before Pontius Pilate. He was beaten, he was mocked, he was spit upon and he showed up on trial, but really he put Pilate on trial. And there was an angry mob of Jewish officials and Roman soldiers just outside of the courtyard of the palace walls. And in the middle of the, the trial, Pilate goes into his headquarters and he calls Jesus to him. He wants a private audience with this man who is, is odd. He, Pilate knows there's something special about Jesus of Nazareth and every word that comes out of his mouth is unlike any other teacher. He wants to examine Jesus for himself. So Jesus says to him in verse 37 of John chapter 18, he says, for this purpose I was born 
And for this purpose, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who's of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? And then Pilate goes away. Jesus really, in his mercy, in his grace, has offered Pilate an invitation here. He says, everyone who's of the truth hears my voice. Pilate, do you hear it? Do you hear what I'm saying to you? I've come into the world to show the truth, to reveal reality as it really is. Do you see it? Do you hear it? And Pilate, I think, I'm convinced that Pilate is a smart guy. He's a very accomplished, very cunning, ruthless kind of Roman official. I'm convinced that Pilate knew something was going on, that the Holy Spirit was moving in his heart, and he squashed it. He, he absolutely stomped on the Spirit and, and stopped whatever was going on in his heart. And he glibly, cynically says, what is truth? And he doesn't even hang around to hear Jesus' answer. He doesn't want to hear it. He doesn't care what truth really is. That's a problem. If we're going to be people who are effective in our mission and vision, we have to value truth highly. You know, I, I think truth, again, in our culture is a very interesting concept these days. In one of my first sermons here, I remember Ashley Carpenter telling me, I, I referenced Stephen Colbert and the Colbert Report and how his word of the day was truthiness. It's kind of like, you know, it's actually, it was the Oxford Dictionary Word of the Year in 2009. It's actually been added to the dictionary. Here's the definition. It's the quality of seeming or being felt to be true, even if it's not true. <laughs> I read a blog post today. I told Morgan, uh, one of my daily readings today, that said, we now live in a post-truth, post-fact world. That terrifies me as a father of young children, that they, they don't know what facts are. Because if you don't like something that happened, just say it didn't happen. You can have alternative facts now, right? You can make up your own version, and if you type it with all caps, that means it really must be true. <laughs> this is a frightening concept in our world. Honest people of integrity should value truth. We're going to talk about what truth really means today. Where does our culture even go to find truth these days? What is the source of truth? I know you've all seen High School Musical. You young adults in the back row, maybe? Yeah. Cynthia's not ashamed. Yeah. She's seen it. She knows every word. <laughs> Extremely popular with the students that I used to work with about a decade ago. One of the main characters sings this lyric. The answers, I won't call on you, Cynthia, to sing it. I'll just say it. The answers are all inside of me. All I've got to do is believe. That's the message we're telling our children. All the answers are inside of you. You don't need this. You don't need some external, you don't need me to tell you what's true. The answers are all inside of you. This is the mantra of our culture these days. In a commencement address recently, the celebrity chef Mario Batali, great food, bad theology. 
he admonished the graduates to follow your own truth expressed consistently by you. You get to determine what is true by how you choose to live it out. In 2009, Ellen DeGeneres told another group of graduates, my advice to you is to be true to yourself and everything will be fine. What does that mean? True to yourself. We really should consider what that means because it is the message that our kids are hearing constantly. And guess what? So are we grown-ups. It's the basis of so many media messages that we're constantly bombarded with. We should probably think about it and ask what it means. In his book, The Road to Character, I know I quoted a lot. It's a great book written by a guy who is not sure God exists. David Brooks he says, as I looked around popular culture, I kept finding the same messages everywhere. You are special. Trust yourself. Be true to yourself. Movies from Pixar and Disney are constantly telling children how wonderful they are. Commencement speeches are larded with the same cliches. Follow your passion. Don't accept limits. Chart your own course. You have a responsibility to do great things because you're so great. This is the gospel, Brooks says, of self-trust. If we follow Brooks' logic, the question becomes, what gospel do you trust? On what foundation are you building your life? we just saying, I will build my life upon your word. It is a firm foundation. Do we really believe that? What message are we trusting with our lives? What message are we willing to trust to death? Are you trusting yourself? Are you believing in yourself unto death? Would you bet your life on yourself? We're all betting our lives on something, it's true. Every one of us in here today is betting our lives that what message we choose to build our life on is the right one and the true one. Whatever gospel you choose to believe in, the gospel of self-trust, like Brooks says, or the gospel of the American dream, the, the gospel of success, the gospel of popularity, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that can't all be true. That message that you are building your life on will be what determines your destiny both in this life and the next. It better be true. Friend Shaka, one of my mentors, he wrote, hey, this is America. We're all free to believe whatever we want to believe until we die. Then all that matters is what's true. Whew, that's good. It's a good line. You can believe whatever you want. It's America, man. Come on. Do whatever you want until you die. Then it matters what you chose because all that matters is what message is true. In a postmodern culture like ours, there's a lot of competing truth claims out there that say, build your life upon this gospel, build your life upon this gospel. But according to the Bible and according to logic, only one of them can be true. In our text for today, Jesus is gathered in the, the upper room with his disciples, this is part of the farewell discourse, John 13 to 17. 
And on the night he was betrayed and arrested, he was actually responding in verse 6 to a question. In verse 5, the preceding verse, good old Thomas, soon to be known as Doubting Thomas, is looking for some tangible evidence, something concrete to stand on here. Jesus had just been telling them at the the end of verse 2, he says, I go to prepare a place for you. And verse 3 says, "If, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him in a panic, I'm sure, Lord, we we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Where's the map? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. What does Jesus mean by this? Well, I love the way that D.A. Carson puts it. He's a good Presbyterian, John. In his commentary, he says, Jesus is the way to God precisely because he is the truth. And he is the life of God. Jesus is the truth because he embodies the supreme revelation of God. He himself narrates God, says and does exclusively what the Father gives him to say and do. Indeed, he is properly called God. So it's it's because Jesus perfectly reveals God's truth, true truth, truth as God sets it, reality as God renders it. And because he perfectly mediates life, real life, everlasting life, a life of thriving and flourishing now and forever, because of these two things, he is the very way to God. Therefore, he's the only one who can say the last part of verse six, no one comes to the Father except through me. The test of whether someone really knows God or not is found in the way that they respond to the supreme revelation of God, the person of Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. All of history points to him. All of Bible points to him. Every page of the Old Testament points forward to Christ. Every page of the New Testament points backward to Christ. It's all about him as the climax of God's redemptive plans for this fallen world. And one day he will come back, as we sang, to finish the work of redemption and the great resurrection. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's a very exclusive statement, isn't it? You know, our culture, again, has a really hard time with exclusivity. I confess, I've been so conditioned by culture that I hear a statement like, no one comes to God except through Jesus. I I hear that and I start to squirm. I get a little uncomfortable. What does that mean for all my Jewish, Hindu, atheist friends? What do I do with that? It's not easy. My brain automatically says, what about people of other faiths? It's an absolute statement that Jesus is making. For anyone who really struggles with these kind of questions and is looking for a good guide, an orthodox guide, I'd recommend another Presbyterian, Tim Keller. Timothy Keller's book, Reason for God, we have it in our library, you don't have to buy it. It's a 
a really helpful book that helps me deal with a lot of these tough questions. He's also helped me understand that when we talk about truth, we have to talk about doubt as well. Doubt is not necessarily a bad thing. Keller says a faith without doubt is like a body without any antibodies in it. People who go blithely through life too busy or too indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against the experience either of tragedy or of the probing questions of a smart skeptic. A person's faith can collapse overnight if they have failed over the years to listen patiently to their own doubts, which should only be discarded after long reflection. I've seen, you've probably known people who come into college, I know exactly what I believe, and then they go to one philosophy course and they're like, it's all a lie. <laughs> it happens all the time. We have to be serious about our doubts and to hold them and not discard them until we've really seriously thought about them. Keller advocates for holding on to what we believe to be true with clarity, but also with great humility to understand that we respect those who disagree, to be civil in a pluralist society by understanding where other people are coming from. As Paul writes in Ephesians 4, verse 15, speak the truth in love as we grow up into every, in every way into him who is our head, Jesus Christ. Remember that we walk by faith, not by sight. There's no video evidence of the resurrection of Christ. There's no video of the Holy Spirit coming at Pentecost. There's no video evidence of God. We, we take these things on faith, and so do skeptics. They doubt on faith as well. We have to acknowledge that and hold these beliefs with conviction, but also with humility and love and respect and grace. Keller says that as a pastor for 20 years on a little island called Manhattan, he often gets to ask someone, what's your biggest problem with Christianity? You know what the number one answer is? The exclusivity. How can Christianity be the only way to God? So he tells a story about a time when he was on a panel with a Muslim imam and a Jewish rabbi. The three of them were brought in and they were asked to discuss the differences between their faiths. And they, it was at a college uh, university setting and, and they all agreed that if one of them was right about God, then the other two at least failed in some way to love God accurately. They couldn't all be equally true and right. And guess how the students reacted? They hated it. They were like, wait, you guys are so intolerant. They were like, you guys, you don't get it. We're never, we're never gonna have world peace until the great religions can lay down their exclusive truth claims. Keller points out that every religion, and even atheists, all make exclusive truth claims. Of course, this is the, the truth. There is no God, says the atheist. They're offering that as an absolute truth, aren't they? Everyone who disagrees with me is wrong. <laughs> but Keller makes the point that out of all the exclusive truth claims that are available to us out there, only Christianity is the most inclusive. 
It's the most inclusive, exclusive truth claim. For those of us, Galatians 3.28, who've been baptized into Christ Jesus, there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, for all are one in Christ Jesus, our Lord. There is great power and potential in Christianity for restoring peace and civility to our world. I believe that because Christianity, true Christianity, robust Orthodox Christianity provides a, a profound way for peacemaking. You know, religion does divide people, it's true. It often leads to violence, that's true as well. But Christianity isn't about dominating others. At its core, it's about a man who died for his enemies, praying for their forgiveness as he died. You know, Christianity is subversive. Our truth seems backwards to the world. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. The last shall be first, and so on. Yes, it, it is backwards, but it, it, it's so powerfully true and subversive that it can change the world because it's true. One way to deal with the exclusivity of religion is to simply say that all truth is relative. There is no absolute truth. No one has an exclusive right to truth. Even secular scholars now acknowledge that this is illogical and hypocritical. They've pointed out that the idea that there is no absolute truth is of course presented as an absolute truth. So some smart guy said, fine, there's two absolute truths. That there's only one absolute truth and that there is no absolute truth. To which scholars again have pointed out, well, okay, that's three truths. <laughs> that there are two truths, that there's only one, and that there is no absolute truth. Okay, fine, there's three absolute truths, and so on and so on. You could go into infinity. If something is true, then it must, by definition, be true for you and for me, and be public truth with a capital T. That's what we're after, and it's why I'm a Christian. I find the story of the, the Christian scriptures and the Christian tradition in Orthodox Christianity to be the most compelling, most authentically in line with reality. Truth should matter to us. We should pursue it in all forms. You know, it's sometimes believed that one cannot be pro-science and pro-Christian. I am. We have several. I was talking to Caleb. He's a PhD research scientist here. We have several research scientists who are part of our congregation here today. And, and they are leaders in our church, and they every day seek to uncover the truth. And that's a good thing. Christians should not fear truth, no matter where it's found. St. Augustine wrote in the early 400s, nay, but let every good and true Christian understand that wherever truth may be found, it belongs to his master. 800 years later, Thomas Aquinas would flesh this out, and he came up with the phrase, all truth is God's truth. God alone is the author of truth. 
He's the only one who re renders reality as it actually is. This means that, yeah, you might encounter some truth in the teachings of Buddha. Great. You're going to hear atheists say things that are profoundly true. And you don't have to fear that because every now and then pagan people, lost people, stumble onto some of God's truth. And we shouldn't fear that. That's a good thing. John Calvin in his, I'm really doing a lot of Presbyterians here, aren't I, today? John Calvin said in the Institutes of Christian Religion, in reading profane authors, the admirable light of truth displayed in them should remind us that the human mind, however much fallen and perverted from its original integrity, is still adorned and invested with admirable gifts from its creator. If we reflect that the Spirit of God is the only fountain of truth, we will be careful as we would avoid offering insult to him not to reject or condemn truth wherever it appears. So you scientists out there, go cure cancer. Go explore the mysteries of the universe. We need y'all to do that work because when you do so, sometimes science catches up to the scriptures. That's a beautiful thing. Science displays the glory of the creator God who fine-tuned this world to hold human life and plants and animals and everything else. Water, air, it's amazing. That's great. There's a lot to say about truth, like all of these core values. You can't really do it justice in 30 minutes, but let me close with this idea of where we get truth. It's not in yourselves. I'll go ahead and tell you that. It's not in High School Musical. It's not in a Pixar movie. Sorry, Cynthia. <laughs> we wouldn't know any truth at all if it wasn't for the gracious revelation of God. It's through revelation that we know what is right and good and true. Like Calvin said, our feeble human minds can't perceive what is real and true and good except that the Lord show us. When I was about nine or 10, my, my parents took us on a spring break trip uh, to Boston. They wanted us to see the city and we went to Cambridge and there's a school there that's famous. It's called Harvard. And we took a tour, uh, a self-guided tour. And we kept seeing this seal uh, everywhere. You know what the motto of Harvard is? Veritas, very good. What does Veritas mean? Truth. And the seal of Harvard has three books on it. And usually the books are open. And it says V-E, and then it says, what, R-I, and then T-A-S at the bottom on those three books. And I assumed, I mean, we all got t-shirts, you know, like, oh, I went to Harvard. Uh, I always assumed those books just represented like textbooks, like learning, right? Just books are good to learn. You go to college, you read books. But it was recently discovered, I read this in the Harvard Gazette, that in 1643, on December 27th, the Board of Governors, the overseers of Harvard, met in Harvard Hall, and they agreed upon a school motto, Veritas. It is ordered, the record of the meeting reads, that there shall be a college seal in the form following. And there was a crude drawing, and it had a shield with three books and one Latin word, Veritas. That seal has taken a lot of forms over the years, but the original 1643 drawing shows two open books at the top, and the bottom book is actually open, but it's backwards. It's turned away from the front. You can't see what's in it. 
And there are places now, the law school and a couple other places that still show that original seal with the book turned around. What does that mean? The article said the overturned book does more than bring a viewer back to the Harvard of 1643. The original design, some scholars say, is a reminder of a wilderness college that thought of itself as a new world vanguard in Christ's army. The open books represent the Old and New Testaments, the truth that any could read in the Bible. But the third book represented the yet unwritten truth of the future as the Christians of Harvard saw it. The book of truth that would be written by a second coming of Christ. To the Puritans in Harvard's seventh year, Veritas meant more than truth or even divine truth. It meant fulfillment, the truth of a second coming. God's word is truth because it reveals Jesus Christ, past, present, and future to us. It reveals the mystery of the plan of God to redeem this broken world and put it back together. We must always be committed to Holy Scripture as our sole basis for life and practice here at Woodmont Baptist Church. As long as I'm pastor here, I will always preach from God's word because it is truth. Anything else is just a passing wind. Martin Luther, one of the heroes of the Reformation, who insisted that sola scriptura, scripture alone, was our basis for truth and authority and practice, wrote a hymn that is still sung today. Lord, keep us steadfast in your word. May that be our prayer. May God keep us always steadfast in his word. May we build our lives upon his word, for it is a firm foundation. As St. Peter wrote, quoting from Isaiah, all flesh is like grass in all its glory, like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you did not abandon us to figure out what is true and right and good on our own but that you gave us, Jesus Christ, your supreme self-revelation. You showed up in our world. You put on flesh and condescended to us to show us what you are really like and what you're doing in this world. And not only that, God, but you gave us the written revelation of yourself in your grace and in your mercy. You gave us the Bible that shows us Jesus Christ who shows us you. God, we proclaim today that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. We affirm these historic, orthodox truths of the Christian faith to be right, to be good. We establish our lives upon them because we believe they will lead to eternal life and to abundant life in this life and the next. Lord God, we pray that you would help us to tune out the lies of this world, the messages that tell us that the truth is found inside ourselves, that the truth is found 
in obtaining more stuff, that the truth is found in entertaining ourselves to death. God, we know that these are lies, that they can't be true because the gospel of Jesus Christ alone is true. May we build our church and we build our lives upon your word, now and forever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're gonna have a time of invitation. We're gonna sing trust and obey. It's not enough to believe that God's word is true. You have to obey it by moving forth in obedience. It's a great old hymn, and I think it's so powerful to be happy in Jesus and to trust and obey. Maybe you've heard this and you say, I've been building my life upon something else. I need to build my life upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you're ready to receive him as Lord and Savior for the first time to accept the free gift of salvation that comes by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. If you need to make that decision today, I'm gonna to be here to receive you right now during this time of response. Maybe you wanna join Woodmont. Maybe you say, I've been doing this whole Christian thing on my own, I need a team. I can't do it. You're right, it's a team sport. You can't do Christianity on your own. It's like Derek Henry playing against the Chiefs by himself, right? You gotta have a line. You gotta have blockers. You gotta have someone to hand the ball. We need each other to sharpen each other, to hold each other accountable. If you're ready to jump in into what God's doing, I'll go ahead and tell you, we're not a perfect church. We're not, and guess what? There isn't a perfect church in the world. There's only a perfect Savior. We're full of imperfect people. But I will tell you this, we will love you, we will partner with you, and commit to do life with you as you walk the path of discipleship. Maybe you just need prayer. Maybe you're going through a hard season right now. Maybe you need healing emotionally, physically, spiritually, whatever it is that you wanna pray about. Maybe you have a big test coming up, a big uh, scan coming up, maybe you have a surgery coming up, whatever it is. Uh, I'm gonna ask Brad and Trey and Jan if y'all come up here, our prayer ministry team. If you wanna pray with somebody, they'll be here to receive you, or if you just wanna come to the altar and pray, it'll be open as well. If you wanna be baptized, um, this is where I'm not Presbyterian. We believe in baptism by immersion. If you wanna be baptized, uh, dunked as a symbol of dying to yourself and rising to a whole new life in believer's baptism, we invite you to come forward today and talk about that. Whatever it is you need to do, don't leave this place until you've responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Will you now stand and sing, trust and obey?